Good morning, Church of the Holy Spirit. I'm so glad that we are not rich and that passage does not apply to us, aren't you? That is a tough passage of Scripture. Hey, for just a moment, can I be a proud father with you? My son, Jacob, is a senior at Salem High School. He's a team captain of the football team. Um, he plays lacrosse as well as a captain for that team. He plays both ways, both sides of the ball. He's a long snapper. He plays tight end and defensive end. And this past Friday night, they played Pulaski County and pounded them 55 to 6. And Jake had a game that was unbelievable. He had 101 reception, yards of receptions. He had um, a couple touchdowns. He had some fumble recoveries, some sacks. He just had a great game. And I just want to show you the highlight reel for just a second from WDBJ. Salem and Pulaski County normally play at the end of the year, but lately it hasn't mattered when the two play. Tonight, the Spartans went after their 21st win of the Cougars in the last 24 meetings. To Kenneth Dobson Stadium we go. Salem wasting no time getting started. They're on Wilson going deep for his guy, Chauncey Logan Jr. Logan hauls it in and they drag him down at the five. From there, it's Wilson rolling out. He's going to hit Jake Massey in the end zone just like that. It's 7-0 Spartans. First play from scrimmage after the kick. The Cougars going to get it to their playmaker, John Lyman. He's gone. 65 yards. Lyman showing off some quicks. The fleet feet. That made it 7-6 Salem. From there, though, it was all Spartans. Wilson again going down the middle to Massey. That's good for another Salem TD, and it's 14 to 6 Spartans at that point. Cam Leftwich going to turn the scoreboard again. Leftwich bowls in from short yardage. It's now 21 6. The Spartans lead it. And how about one more time? Wilson to Massey, their third scoring connection of the night. Salem led it 30 to 6. Spartans going to win it big, 55 to 6. The final. We need to take a quick break, but we. Now, come on. Woo! He is so lucky he has my DNA. I'm not kidding you. No, but you know what made me even, you know, that, that was awesome to watch. That was awesome to be a part of and to watch. But you know what made me proud? It was not that. That was phenomenal. It was fun. People were high-fiving me in the stands as if I did something. I'm like, you know, I started singing Glory Days. Like, I didn't do anything, right? But what made me really proud was not that. What made me proud was after the game, he was interviewed by a reporter. And the reporter asked him, he said, how did you and how, the, how did the team come back from or handle the momentum shift that occurred very early in the game when, when Pulaski scored a 65-yard touchdown right on the heels of your first touchdown? And Jake said this as an 18-year-old young man. He said this to the reporter. Coach preaches reset and refocus, Massey said. When something goes wrong, you don't fret and you don't worry. You reset, you act like the score is zero to zero, and you go again. Might I suggest, church, that we are in a moment of time in 2021 where the Father, the King, is calling us to reset and refocus as a church. That it might seem like things are going wrong around us, but we, the bride, cannot afford to fret or to worry. We must get up. We got to act like the score is zero to zero, and we got to go again. Amen? 
It's time that we be the bride victorious and stop wringing our hands in fret and worry about what's going on around us. It is time, I believe, for us to get prepared and get ready for revival. Widespread revival, not just in Roanoke, but in Virginia, across our nation and across this world. And the, world re the word revival or revive means to awaken, to bring back to life, to restore to life, to ignite, to resuscitate, to wake up. We gotta wake up, church. We gotta get our heads out of the sand We've got to wake up. Revivalist Robert Coleman wrote, revival is the awakening or quickening of God's people to their true nature and their true purpose. Might I suggest we've lost way and sight of our true nature and true purpose. And it's time for us, me included, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone else. It is time for us to stop playing at church and awaken to our true nature and true purpose to be the church victorious. But there are some truths about revival. The first truth about revival, there's two of them that I wanna talk about just briefly. The first truth about revival is that there is a price or a cost for revival. I've been praying for quite some time now, God, bring revival, bring revival, Lord. Do a sweeping thing across this nation. Do a sweeping thing in our churches. Let us come alive again, Lord. And the Lord just chastised me very sweetly and gently, but firmly one day. And he said, Mike, I know you want resurrection power. I know you want revival, but to get to resurrection power, you've got to have a total crucifixion. Are you willing, Mike, to die completely? We like the resurrection, but do we like the cross? You see, we cannot be partially dead. We cannot be partially crucified with Christ. It is all or it is none, and we've got to stop fooling ourselves. It's like that old song, oh, the wonderful cross, cross that results in, in, in resurrection the words say, bid us come and die so that we might truly live. The second part of revival is, I believe that it's God's intent that revival would never be needed because it would never end. I believe God intended when Jesus left this earth that we would have perpetual revival that lasted forever and ever until his return because he left a culture of revival that would continue and be the impact forever and ever until his return. I believe it's the heart of God that upon salvation of an individual that a move of God would come into that person's heart that would affect a church, that would affect a city, that would impact a nation and would move across the world. I believe that's the heart of God, that followers of Jesus would be so surrendered that there would be perpetual revival where church impacts culture and culture does not impact church. If you notice, the word revival is not in the New Testament. Jesus, Peter, Paul, none of the writers even mentioned or talked about revival. They didn't encourage a need to pray for it. They didn't talk about a need for it to come. The word revival was developed in church history when there was a deadening of faith, 
where we lost our way to our true nature and our true purpose, where the church started getting impacted by culture and not the other way around. There became an urgency amongst men and women in the church that began to realize we had lost our way to our true nature and our true purpose. And there began to become an urgency to pray and to call out upon the name of the Lord to come and do another move amongst God's church. You see, Jesus, I believe, was the revival. When Jesus came and walked in the earth, and then when he ascended to heaven and 50 days later, the Holy Spirit came, I believe he left a culture of revival that he intended to be perpetual until his return. If you notice in the four great commissions, there's three in the Synoptic Gospels and one in the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks to us directly about what our purpose, our true nature, and our true purpose is to be and was intended from his leaving until his return. And he gives us a map of how we're to live and how we're to impact culture and not the other way around. I'm gonna read those four accounts and I just want you to see the things that he says to us that should make us very uncomfortable. It should make us think, oh my goodness, how do we? And I'm gonna just pull out some marks, some, some things that should mark us as a culture of revival that we should be living in and being as we are being the church. So just look at it and see what the Lord speaks to you. Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came to them and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Mark 16, 15 through 18, go into all the world and proclaim. Can somebody say proclaim? Proclaim, that was so powerful, proclaim. And proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs, man, this is gonna make us really uncomfortable. And these signs will accompany those who believe. Now this was written 2000 years ago, but I believe it's real today and it's not dismissed and it's not gone. These signs will accompany those who believe. And you could just put in my name after each semicolon. In my name, they will cast out demons. In my name, they will speak in new tongues. In my name, they will pick up serpents with their hands. In my name, if they drink poison, it will not hurt them. And in my name, they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Luke 24, 45 through 49. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, which was the Holy Spirit, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then finally, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. He walked through a door, people. We just read through that. Oh, he just transported through. He walked through a door and he said to them, peace 
be with you. That word peace means the authority to destroy chaos. Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his sides, his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. In the same way the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold the sins, the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I am not preaching about that this morning. I don't know what to do with that. You see, Jesus left a culture of revival. He left a culture that he intended to be a perpetual state of living in and being the church that would impact the world in their true nature and their true purpose. And I want to pull out six marks or six things that I believe mark a culture of revival that Jesus left us that we need to return to and come awake to. And the first one is this, the refreshing presence of God. You see, the refreshing presence of God gives peace, that authority to destroy chaos. The refreshing presence of God brings beautiful conviction, not shame, but conviction. The beautiful, refreshing presence of God makes everything else seem dim in light of his glory and grace because we have eyesight for nothing but Jesus and him alone. The second thing that a culture of revival does it's repentance and forgiveness. Now, when I say repentance, I don't mean just turning from something. There's a component of that. I mean running toward the Father, fixing your gaze on the Father. We do need to turn from our sin, but I could go throughout the entire day and not engage in any sinful behavior, and God is still calling me to run all day long in repentance with my eyes fixed and running to the Father. A culture of repentance and forgiveness because repentance, there's this urgency in a cultural revival to run to the Father every day. There's a freedom from what controls us, from what holds us in bondage that starts to fall off. There's, there's this surrender and death of ourself and our stuff and our need to control and our agendas. And we say, yes, Lord Jesus, yes. The third component of a cultural revival are eyewitnesses that go. You know, as an attorney, eyewitnesses, if you have an eyewitness on the stand that has witnessed an event, you cannot get them off their story because if they've seen it, they believe it. Jesus is asking for eyewitnesses to come and see him and then go tell it. You see, when we've seen Jesus, we cannot be constrained. When we've spent time in the presence of Jesus and we've seen his goodness, we will not be constrained from sharing his goodness to the whole world and nothing will stop us. You see, I think that the true nature and character of Jesus is being distorted in culture because we do not have enough eyewitnesses who have spent time for themselves in the presence of Jesus to go tell others about his goodness. The fourth thing is fresh revelation and understanding of scripture and an urgency to proclaim the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. It said he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. When we spend time in the presence of God, when we start to say yes, when there's repentance and forgiveness and freedom from our bondage, we start to live in a new sense of revelation of the word of God. And there's this urgency to proclaim, I was lost, but now I've been found. I was blind, but now I see. 
It's like the man who was born blind in scriptures. He said, I don't even know who Jesus is, but I know I was blind and now I see. You can't shut me up. Fifth, fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit power with accompanying signs and wonders. And I know this part can get us very uncomfortable because we've seen abuses by people who are out there. But just because there are abuses does not mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater. We need a move of God to blow across this land, to blow through our city and our homes, that we see an outpouring, a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit with signs and wonders that will bring the sixth and final culture revival, which is new baptisms and new disciples. I am so tired of seeing one baptism a year. I'm so weary of seeing one convert a year and thinking, oh, we got a new one. We should see thousands upon thousands because our lives are so on fire and so fresh and so full of the Holy Spirit that people are running in droves to the beautiful church. That's a culture of revival that Jesus intended. But I know human nature and so do you. And it's our nature again and again and again. And read the book of Judges, read Kings. It's our nature to forget our true nature and our true purpose. And from the time of Jesus until now, we've been in cycles just like the Israelites of forgetting our true nature and our true purpose. And in the 1700s, there began a series of what they call the four great awakenings that have occurred about every 50 years since the mid-1700s, where there was a spiritual reawakening, explosion of spiritual interest that all began with a few men and women who got on their knees and began to call out to God for a return to our, our, our purpose and our nature, a call for revival. The first great awakening occurred around 1730 to 1740 in England with the likes of John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards. It broke out across denominational boundaries. Lay people began preaching. There was a recovery of the simple, beautiful gospel. Missionaries flooded out, converts, but it all was birthed in prayer. The second great awakening occurred right around 1790 to 1820, about 50 years after the first one. Um, it broke out across North America and the frontier. Charles Finney was called the father of modern revivalism. It involved social reform. New denominations broke out. Abolitionism, new church movements, especially amongst the less wealthy and the less educated. Gospel recover, Holy Spirit manifestations, and again, missionaries and converts all birthed and bathed in prayer. The third great awakening began in 1859, almost exactly 50 years later until 1910. The likes of D.L. Moody, William Seymour, the Isuzu Street Revival in California, the Welsh Revival in Wales. There was the YMCA was birthed. Salvation Army was birthed out of that. There was the holiness movement. And again, birthed out of prayer. Holy Spirit signs and wonders, missionaries, new converts, new baptisms, which then led to the fourth great awakening that some scholars don't recognize, but I'm gonna include it here today. The fourth great awakening that began in 1950 and ended in 1971, exactly 50 years ago from this year. And that great awakening had the likes of Billy Graham and Bill Bright, Jim Rayburn, the Jesus movement, the hippies, remember? Love, not war. Like there was the, 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 the birth of the parachurch organizations like Campus Crusade and YWAM and Young Life and InterVarsity. 
There was a move of God outside the church, signs and wonders, Holy Spirit movement, the charismatic movement, the birth of the non-denominational church began. In all of these great awakenings, there was a consistent theme that you've heard me saying. Unceasing united prayer by a few. No spiritual awakening has begun anywhere in the world apart from united prayer, persistently. The second thing was there was a waning or a deadening of religion and faith, especially in mainstream denominationalism. There was an identity confusion, sound familiar? That, that led to men and women in the church moving into a place of repentance and surrender and return to the simple gospel, a return to the foundation of scripture that then often out, occurred outside what was mainstream because those churches that didn't get on board and get swept up with revival got left behind. And there was an out, fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit with signs and wonders and miracles but you know what marked all of them that got me most excited is there was a return of willing, zealous young men and women in high school, college, and in their 20s that understood and got a hold of the great, beautiful, true nature and purpose of the bride of Jesus Christ. And they said, yes, Lord Jesus, wherever you say go, I'll go. Whatever you say do, I'll do. In 1940, there was a young man by the name of Professor Edwin Orr. He was Irish, unknown 28-year-old. He was a revivalist in England. He was uneducated, like I said. He, he moved to the United States and found himself a professor of theology at Wheaton College. And he had a passion to lead young men and women into revival. And so he took a group of 20 to 22-year-old students over to England to talk them through and walk them through and give them a passion for the revival days, to return to revival. He took a group of these young men and women, primarily men, to the Epworth Refectory in England, to the home of the great revivalist John Wesley. He was leading these men and women through the home and he went through the study and the kitchen and he made his way to the back of the house where was the bedroom. And they were all surrounding the bed that was said to be the bed of John Wesley. And one of the young students, a tall, gangly young man, pointed to the floor and said, Professor, what is that? And they all looked down, and there beside the bed were some indentions or holes in the floor with a worn carpet. And John Wesley said, it said, tradition states, that those were knee holes where every day, for hours upon hours, John Wesley would place his knees with his arms outstretched and he would call upon the name of the Lord for revival to sweep the land, not just England, but Europe and the United States. And he called upon the name of the Lord day in and day out in soaking prayer. Well, they left the home and were on the bus. Professor Orr did a head count and noticed that, it, that a young man was missing. It was the young man that asked about the knee hole. He went back through the study into the house and then into the kitchen and he heard a voice in the back of the house and he made his way back to the bedroom and he slowly opened up the door and there he saw on the floor with his knees and those knee holes, that young man with his arms outstretched and he was crying and he was praying over and over again, oh Lord, do it again, do it again, Lord, and do it with me. Oh Lord, do it again, do it again, Lord and do it 
with me. Professor Orr went over, put his hands on the young man's shoulder and said, it's time to go. We've got to get on the bus. And that 22-year-old young man by the name of Billy Graham stood up and went and got on the bus. About nine years later in 1949, Professor Orr was with Billy Graham again at Forest Home Camp in California. Billy and Professor Orr were slated to speak and about three weeks after that, Billy was supposed to begin the L.A. Revivals, the now famous L.A. Revivals. But Billy was having a crisis of faith. He was struggling with believing that this Bible was the inerrant word of God, that it was inspired by God. He was struggling and having doubts about the person of Jesus Christ and he didn't know what to do and he was struggling in his ministry. And he sat at a picnic table with Professor Orr at 1 a.m. who said these words to him. Your need is in the realm of the mind and not the heart or the will. You're surrendered emotionally, Billy. You love the Lord with all your heart. You've surrendered volitionally too. You'd quit your job and go and bury yourself in some dirty little village on the borders of China, wouldn't you? But are you intellectually surrendered? Billy went out in the woods by himself and it said that he wrestled with God for hours late into the morning in the early hours until he finally fell on a tree stump and he prayed these words. He said, Father, I'm going to accept this as your word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts and I will believe this to be your inspired word. He would tell just a few and not many that he had an encounter with the Holy Spirit there in the woods that probably if he had shared would have gotten him kicked out of being a Baptist. He said simply, I was filled afresh by the Holy Spirit and I was forever changed. He would go on three weeks later to begin the LA revivals that were supposed to last one week, but lasted three weeks, that 300,000 people came through there and 5,000 men and women gave their lives to Jesus Christ. Over his 60 year ministry, he preached Jesus to 214 million people in over 195 cities and 3 million salvations. Now, why do I tell you about this, about Billy Graham or about the revivals or their awakenings? Because we are poised 50 years since the end of the last one. We've seen a, a deadening of faith in culture. We've seen culture impacting the church and not the other way around. We've seen young men and women run off from the church. There is a need for revival in our land. And what would happen, what would just happen if this room of men and women got on their knees and put their knees in the knee holes of those who came before us and stretched out their arms and said, oh Lord, do it again and do it with me. Oh Lord, I will allow my faith to go beyond my intellect and my questions and my doubts and I will trust your inspired word. I will say yes to you and I'm asking for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. I'm asking you to do what only you can do. I say, yes, Lord, my life is yours. What would happen if just in Roanoke, we did that here? That we stopped playing church. We return to our true nature and our true purpose. Guys, there is work to be done. 
there is work that God wants to do through us. We have the cure for cancer and we've got to take it to the world. Will you just join me? I've been so burdened. Join me in putting your knees in the knee holes and just saying, God, do it again. Do it with me. Lord Jesus, I'm just hearing the words of that song, I surrender all. Lord, I know you want to do a move. And Lord, I know that you want to use us. And Father, I know that you've called us to walk through a death of self and a death of our agenda. Father, today, we just begin today. Will you just, will you just join me at the altar? I, I, I don't want to manipulate anyone, but just, let's just move to the Lord and say, God, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what you're calling of me. I don't know what you're asking of me, but I say yes before you ask the question. Do it again, Lord, and do it with me. We don't want to be Christians in name only, God. We want to be men and women, followers of Jesus, who have lives that are so on fire and in love with you that we've seen the risen Savior and nobody can stop us from sharing that testimony, God. Will you just take a moment and join us at the altar if you feel so compelled?